Strasvitti. Hello and welcome to City Break St Petersburg, Episode 9, which I'm calling Revolutions in St Petersburg. I am very aware that whole books are written on, on the Russian Revolution or the revolution which took place in St Petersburg in 1917. I'm quite aware of the folly of trying to summarise that in a half-hour episode. And so, being realistic, what I'm really trying to do is give some sense of the tension that existed in the whole 300 years plus of St Petersburg's history between autocratic rulers and people who wanted to change from autocracy and just try and give a sense of the sweep of history that led to the 1917 revolution. So the to and fro, some rulers tried to make little reforms, often they were cut down savagely by people who opposed them. The idea that 1917 isn't the first key date in the history of revolutions in the city We'll come to 1825 and 1905 for sure. And just to try and give some sense of what happened so that that informs what you're looking at when you go around St Petersburg as a tourist. So to make a start, if you think about the early years of the city's existence under Peter the Great, don't think there's any doubt that he was pretty tyrannical. You only have to remember the thousands and thousands of people who died following his orders and being forced to build the city in the first place, called to mind some of the brutal punishment regimes that he ran and his propensity to humiliate all and sundry around him. And you think, yep, there wasn't much voice of the people then. What about a bit later in the 18th century then, under, for example, the two great empresses, Elizabeth and Catherine the Great? Well, absolutely no doubt that they were autocratic rulers, that they loved the splendour that came with all of that, that they spent lots of money and people's lives having magnificent palaces built, having them then manned by hundreds of servants. The travel writer William Cox, writing in the 1780s, put it like this, quote, The richness and splendour of the Russian court surpasses description. He tells us how what was notable when you see saw the women, the very few women at the top of the tree, obviously, what you noticed was, quote, the profusion of diamonds and other precious stones which sparkle on every part of their dress. And he tells us, too, that men weren't exempt from all this peacockery, that they had jewels in places where other people had, quote, buttons, buckles, hilts of swords and epaulets. As another tiny example, Let's take the 29th anniversary of Catherine the Great's coronation when the celebration involved a thousand carriages arriving in Palace Square for a dress ball at the Winter Palace. So is it fair to say they had absolutely no insight into the lives of their subjects? Well, you can remember that the Empress Elizabeth took pilgrimages very seriously and would plod over vast tracts of Russian territory, doing penance, stopping to pray everywhere, Was that some insight into other people's lives? I like to think she would have at least noticed some things as she was passing. But you could argue that really this was a personal display of power and she wanted to be seen by many of her subjects. What about Catherine? Well, we know that she took an interest in the Enlightenment. She corresponded with philosophers like Voltaire and Diderot. Early on in her reign, she talked quite a lot about wanting people to have more than they currently did. She promoted education, for example, founding the Smolin Institute, which was for young women, quite a radical idea in her day. She created an elective legislative commission, which was voted for by nobles and merchants and Cossacks and many groups of people, not the serfs, of course, but nevertheless, that was extending the right to some idea about what was going on to people other than herself. 
I think in conclusion, though, when you hear her talking in the quote that I'm going to read in a minute, you realise that she wasn't doing this because she was going to give up any of her absolute power to rule. It was more that she was trying to give it some kind of legal basis. She said, for example, quote, There is no other authority that can act with a vigour proportionate to the extent of such a vast domain. So this idea that only the Empress could rule certainly was one of hers. She was succeeded, albeit rather briefly, by her son Paul, who did introduce some measures against the elite, which you could argue would be then rather in favour of the people. For example, he decided that from then on, the rich would be taxed like everybody else. They would no longer be exempt from corporal punishment. So he was taking away some of their rights and privileges. Not that that's the same thing as giving up his own power, of course. Um, He gave the peasants the right to petition him personally if they felt they had been mistreated by their lords. So he obviously had some idea about their lives. But he was murdered and replaced rather swiftly, very possibly, in fact, by people who didn't like the idea that he was trying to bring in some reforms. And he was succeeded then by Alexander I, who ruled from 1801 onwards. I think you can say that Alexander I had some awareness of the dilemma about the power struggle. Should he give the nobles more privileges and more power, bearing in mind, of course, that they very much kept him ruling? Or should he override them, possibly personally rather dangerous, and extend civil rights? He talked about this quite a lot. I think the general opinion is that he didn't accomplish very much. And in the end, his reign is much more remembered for its military success, notably the defeat of Napoleon. You can argue that the problems really started with the death of Alexander I, which occurred in 1825, because he didn't have an heir. So who was to succeed? I think general opinion was that it would be his brother Constantine, but Constantine surprised everybody by declining the role, didn't want to be emperor, so it was decided that their younger brother Nicholas would take on the role instead, and that didn't go down well in certain quarters. He was very conservative. People who wanted a more liberal emperor, one with more of an eye to Western Europe, say, felt that they really weren't very happy, they wanted Constantine to be the emperor, and so they staged a rebellion. They arrived in Senate Square in central St. Petersburg, making it very clear by their demonstration that they were refusing to take the oath of allegiance to the new emperor if it was going to be Nicholas. Nicholas lost no time in proving that he really was an emperor who was going to rule with an iron fist if that should be necessary, ordered his artillerymen to fire on them, and bloodshed followed. There's a book called Tragedy in the Caucasus by Lawrence Kelly in which the following description is written, quote, The rank and file died on the square, or were drowned in the neva, whose thick ice was pounded by shot and opened. The rest were easily arrested as they fled. So the ringleaders, of course, were tried first. They were hanged. It's said, in fact, that you could say that they weren't treated to the totally grisly death that they could have been. Lawrence Kelly, again writing about this, says the following, quote, Quartering was commuted by imperial benevolence to hanging from makeshift gibbets on the ramparts of the fortress of St. Peter and Paul. A hundred and thirty others, les malheureux, began the long fettered hobble to Siberia. So if you think that's imperial benevolence, they weren't hanged, drawn and quartered, they were simply hanged. And a hundred and thirty people were exiled to Siberia to make it very clear to everybody else that revolting against the emperor wasn't going to get you anywhere. Nicholas I, understandably perhaps, felt threatened by this and I think that probably made him more determined to make no concessions at all to liberal ideas. 
he did call serfdom, quote, an obvious and palpable evil, which tells us that he had some idea about what could be better, but he ignored all calls throughout his reign to abolish it. So we're left really thinking that the blood shed by the Decembrists, which was the name for the people who organised this revolution in December 1825, had been spilt to no purpose. We have some writing by one Charlotte Disbrow, who was the wife of a British minister, visiting as it happened in December 1825, who wrote the following. The traces of the sad event on Monday were horrid, pools of blood on the snow and spattered up against the houses. By the end of the rule of Alexander I, things had taken quite a downturn in Russia. They'd been defeated, for example, at Crimea, and they didn't feel that they compared very favourably with the Western nations that they so much wanted to be a rival to. And so Alexander II, who succeeded his father in 1855, decided that he wanted to try and introduce some reforms and make Russia a bit more Western. He brought in many things, such as public education, He reformed the military. He eventually abolished serfdom. But this brought problems because, of course, yes, there were winners. People had a little bit more control over their own lives, but there were certainly losers as well. So, for example, if you freed the serfs but didn't give them any land, then what choices were they ever going to have? On the other hand, if you did give them land, where were you taking it from and who, in that case, were you not pleasing? A landowner at the time put it like this, quote, To free the peasants without land is impossible, but to expropriate the landowners would be extremely unjust. I guess if you're a landowner you did think that, but there's some truth in it, is there not? So the result of all of this was quite a lot of unrest. Alexander II was trying to introduce liberal reforms, but he came up against all the people who didn't like that, and also many of the people whom he was trying to help, who felt that things weren't moving fast enough. And the result of all of that was a number of murder attempts, the last of which was successful. So that event that we've already talked about in a previous episode, he was assassinated in March 1881, leading, of course, to his son building the church on the spill of blood on the very spot where he'd been killed. Alexander III took over then in 1881 and, of course, immediately had to react to this assassination and did so by declaring a state of emergency, really making the power of the authorities stronger again. So newspapers could be suspended, public meetings could be banned. It was really a return to the past and many older traditions were revived. You can see this, actually, in the design of the Church on the Spilled Blood, which, unlike so many of the other cathedrals and big churches in St. Petersburg, which were looking west in their style, this one is very Russian in design, with its all its onion domes and everything. And it's kind of a building that says, we are making no more concessions to Western Europe. We're sticking with Russian style. So, as so many other times... The desire to get some liberal reforms passed led, in fact, eventually to a tightening of the rules. And when the last Tsar, Nicholas II, took over in 1894, he embraced his father's ideas of authoritarianism. He was said to love order and discipline and the military. He justified this to himself by, perhaps through his very strong religious beliefs, he felt sure that God was acting through him as the appointed ruler of Russia and that he should live, as he put it, quote, united in love and harmony with his people. I think historians generally agree that he may have had his heart in the right place in certain ways and felt a bit that maybe more should be done for the ordinary folk, but he wasn't any good at actually doing it. 
And given the social situation in Russia at the time, this turned out to be a very bad move. So from the 1880s onwards, many people had come from the countryside into the towns. They were living in squalor and there was a massive gap then between them and their life and what they could see in the aristocracy and of course the imperial court. And this just led to a terrible amount of unrest. So by 1905, a number of things had all come together, the living conditions of the ordinary people in St. Petersburg, the growth of the liberal movement, the fact that Russia had just suffered a humiliating defeat against the Japanese in a war, and the moment came when really enough was enough and the momentum arose for something to be done. And in January 1905, 100,000 workers in the city went on strike, which ground things to a halt, there was no electricity, Nicholas, possibly in retrospect unwisely, decided not to try and stay and do something about all of this, but to withdraw to the countryside, set off with his family to Tarskosello, and was therefore not at home when the peaceful demonstration arrived outside the Winter Palace with their petition, which read as follows. We, workers and inhabitants of the city of St. Petersburg, our wives, children and helpless old parents have come to you, Sovereign, to seek justice and protection. There was a very patriotic mood at the beginning of this event. Thousands of people singing God Save the Tsar, for example. The Tsar, of course, wasn't there. He left presumably instructions that things should be managed. And the guard had been left with the task of achieving this, panicked and began to fire. And so more bloodshed ensued. It's thought that on the day... Over a thousand people were killed. Some of them were shot by the Tsar's guards. Many more were trampled to death in the panic that ensued as people tried to run away. And this day, Bloody Sunday as it became to be known, really brought about what Helen Rappaport calls, quote, a radical shift in the traditional popular perception of the Tsar as the protective little father. A volatile nation descended into extreme violence as the year went on. Political leaders were murdered. I think from this point onwards, the Romanov family knew that they were living in the shadow of danger and all kinds of security measures were brought into place. So the Tsar would have an escort. He would be accompanied by a special police force everywhere he went. The railway lines, whenever used by the imperial family, were guarded by troops. They really were beginning to withdraw and not be able to be seen at all out in public because of the fear that they would be harmed. So next, it's thought rather reluctantly, Nicholas agreed that there should be a parliament created, the State Duma. It was elected by most of the adult male population and in fact this idea was very popular and in the election of 1906 there was a mass turnout. But as it became clear that the programme of the parliament was radical, they wanted land reform, the government opposed them and then dissolved the Duma. So that experiment in democracy was very short-lived. There were several more Duma over the next few years But the struggle was very clear. So the Prime Minister, for example, Peter Stolypin, who had tried very hard to introduce rural reforms, was murdered in 1911. Yet another example of somebody trying to reform things, paying for it with his life. But alongside all of this, the imperial family was still seen to be living in splendour. So, for example, in 1913 was the occasion, the 300th year celebration of the anniversary of the founding of St. Petersburg, And the imperial family were out in force to celebrate that, a procession of carriages down the Nevsky Prospect to the Kazan Cathedral for a celebration. An event described in a newspaper as follows, 
It was all brilliance, the brilliance of the ladies' diamonds, the brilliance of the medals and the stars, the brilliance of the gold and silver of the uniforms. And yet at the same time, there was a feeling that all was not going to be well. So, for example, the same newspaper goes on to explain that the thing that the person writing the article most remembered was, quote, the inexpressibly sad sight of the Tsarevich, still too lame to walk, being carried into the service by a Cossack, his white, pinched, small face gazing anxiously round him at all the sea of human beings before him. 1914, of course, saw the beginning of World War I, a moment which in Russia caused some kind of resurgence of national unity, at least in the beginning. There are reports of the thousands of people who came to outside the Winter Palace, where a mass was held before the Tsar read out his manifesto and made a declaration of war. Huge cheers greeted him when he said, quote, Officers of my guard here present, I greet in you my whole army and give it my blessing. I solemnly swear that I will never make peace so long as one of the enemy is on the soil of the fatherland. And what they were cheering, I think, is obviously partly the sentiment that Russia would prevail, but also knowing that these words were taken from the same oath given by the Emperor Alexander I in 1812, before his defeat of Napoleon. There's a description written from a book called An Ambassador's Memoirs by Maurice Palliologue, a Frenchman, I think, which also gives the sense of, yes, imperial splendour and decisiveness, but at the same time, the fact that this couldn't last for long. So this is how he ends his piece. Quote, the emperor appeared on the balcony. The entire crowd at once knelt and sang the Russian national anthem. To those thousands of men on their knees at that moment, the Tsar was really the autocrat appointed of God, the military, political and religious leader of his people, the absolute master of their bodies and souls. As I was returning to the embassy, my eyes full of this grandiose spectacle, I could not help thinking of that sinister 22nd of January, 1905, on which the working masses of St. Petersburg, led by the priest Gapon and preceded as now by the sacred images, were assembled as they were assembled today before the Winter Palace to plead with their father the Tsar and pitilessly shot down. In her book, Caught in the Revolution, Helen Rappaport describes a diplomatic reception held on the first day of the Russian New Year, once the war was underway, at which Nicholas was present, and where again, others present, certainly looking back, got the feeling that this was in some way the end of an era. So, for example, she writes, quote, During the course of the two-hour reception, he, that's Nicholas, conversed charmingly, with his usual smiles and handshakes, and in perfect English or French. She goes on to say that he was very good at what she calls empty pleasantries, but that he seemed to bristle when, for example, one ambassador tried to talk to him about what was actually going on in the war, and she describes Nicholas standing there, twisting his cap and looking irritated as if he didn't want to be bothered with all these things. She writes that, quote, The Tsar's responses in conversation were mundane, his eyes kindly but vacant. And then she goes on to sum up this idea of it being the end of an era, quote, all in all, it was an impressive gathering of which much was made retrospectively by memoirists as marking, quote, the glitter and pomp of a dying era. Little did any of us realise that we were witnessing the last public appearance of the last ruler of the mighty Romanov dynasty. The Tsar seemed to have no idea that he was standing on a volcano. As the war progressed, there was growing disillusionment in Russia. There were terrible losses suffered, when soldiers did come back, they were reported the terrible conditions in which they were having to live at the front, 
The economy was in the doldrums, conditions at home therefore were very bad as well, and public anger began to grow, such that in February 1917 the discontent culminated in demonstrations about food shortages and other worker grievances. One particular day, when no bread was available, a huge crowd, thought to be actually hundreds of thousands of people, marched to the Winter Palace, wearing placards demanding the end of war and the end of autocracy. And again, the military had to be ordered to restore order. So you might be thinking, I think I know what happens next, but actually it was different this time. Most of the regular soldiers, of course, were away fighting, and so the soldiers here in St. Petersburg were largely new recruits, fresh in from the countryside, really, and they chose not to fight their own people, as they probably saw it. Many of them dropped their guns and joined the demonstration, and I think this was the sign for Nicholas that really things had gone too far and couldn't be brought back. And so he abdicated. He was hoping that his brother, Grand Duke Mikhail, would take over. Mikhail ruled, I think, for one day and then decided that actually it wasn't for him either. He could probably see that this was never going to work. And so 300 years of Romanov rule came to an end. People had different views on this. Uh, Let me quote you one Vladimir Lenin, who said the following... Quote, if in such a cultured country as England it is necessary to behead one crowned criminal, then in Russia it is necessary to behead at least a hundred Romanovs. So he certainly didn't have the idea that the Romanovs could continue. There's a different description from, I think, an American visitor called Mary Lee Markovich describing the aftermath of the revolution in February 1917 as follows. Quote, at last this great people can breathe. They have cast off their chains, along with the weight that has been oppressing them for centuries. Everyone is cheerful and smiling. Nicholas and his family were taken to Alexander Palace, out at Tsarskazelo, where they were kept under house arrest, and from this moment onwards, he was referred to as Citizen Romanov. A month or two later, in March, Russians were beginning to return from exile, the sort of people who'd left thinking that things would never get better, now realising that perhaps the end was coming for the imperial rule and returned to play their part in it, amongst whom was Vladimir Lenin, who began making speeches saying things like peace, bread, land, so very much promising people all sorts. He set about his mission. He set up the newspaper Pravda, which carried messages like, quote, you want to get rich, there is money in the banks. So just almost taunting people with the idea that it was theirs for the taking. He set up a headquarters in the Kashinska mansion across the Neva, where there were hundreds of typewriters and duplicators set up, and people worked night and day on Project Lenin. A visiting American journalist, Robert Long, described it as follows. In a handsome white vestibule with marble statues were dirty, spitting soldiers who lounged over desks, collating reports. A few months after that, on August the 1st, Nicholas and his family were woken up in the middle of the night and made to leave the Alexander Palace and taken by train to Siberia. They'd left St Petersburg, they didn't know it then, but they'd left it for good. Tension built and built, the moment was obviously coming when Lenin and everybody working with him was going to be able to stage their takeover. On the 24th of October, they sent armed detachments of Red Guards to set up roadblocks occupy the central telegraph office and the post office and the telephone exchange. On the 25th of October, Lenin issued a press release which read, the provisional government has been deposed. 
Red guards were surrounding the Winter Palace and they were beginning to demand unconditional surrender of the government. Leaflets were distributed all over the city, which read, quote, Citizens, the provisional government is deposed. State power has passed into the organ of the Petrograd Soviet of workers and soldiers' deputies. And at quarter to three in the morning came the announcement that, indeed, they have surrendered and that the Winter Palace was free. Helen Rappaport's description of what was found by the first people to get inside there reads as follows. Damage from the occupation by the cadets and women's battalion and the subsequent takeover by the Bolsheviks was visible everywhere. Hundreds of muddy footprints had soiled the elegant parquet floors. Silk hangings had been torn down and were now being used as bedding. Looting ensued, closely followed by much drunkenness when people discovered that there were hundreds of priceless bottles of champagne which had lain undisturbed for over 300 years and which soldiers were very pleased to be able to drink and toast the beginning of a new era. There was so much drunkenness that in the end fire engines had to be sent along to turn their hoses on the cellars and flood them and smash as many of the wine bottles as possible. There were reports that many people who were too drunk to escape by then drowned or froze to death. But more and more people were arriving hearing that there were rich pickings to be had. Mariel Buchanan, for example, writes the following. Crowds, eager for a little booty, arrived on the scene. Soldiers in motor lorries drove up and went away again with cases full of priceless wine. Men and women, with their bags and baskets heavy with bottles, could be seen selling them to passers-by in the streets. Even the children had their share of the booty and could be met staggering under the weight of a magnum of champagne or a bottle of valuable liqueur. It wasn't long before... Really, it was pretty anarchic on the streets. Mob rule, drunk people with guns. The foreigners who were there at the time report having been very frightened. For example, one Paulette Pax, who was in St Petersburg because she was playing a role at the theatre, stayed hidden in her flat for a number of days, just too frightened to go out. And this is her description of what she found when eventually she did venture out. Quote, a frozen neighbour, snowbound streets... Empty churches where nobody prayed, few functioning trams, and those there were bursting to capacity. Half the shops closed and shuttered, prolonged power cuts, made worse by serious shortages of coal, wood, kerosene and candles. Bread made of straw, butter and eggs almost unheard of. Of course, having got this far, the Bolsheviks were quick to impose their control and take the city under their command. And this is described well by a Red Cross official who wrote to his wife in the following words, quote, Think of it. The new government is maintaining its control by the bayonet, prescribing all publications, except those that favour their programme, arresting persons without warrant and holding them for weeks, without trial and without charge. So those words encapsulate, I think, don't they, the beginning of the Soviet era with its fear that the people of St Petersburg had shaken off one autocratic regime in favour of what was going to turn out to be another, at least as deadly one. Hardly the brave new world that presumably they'd been hoping for. It was immediately a new era, but I think you could probably say that the old one truly came to its absolute conclusion the following year, in July 1918, when the Tsar and his family, who had been moved from one house to another several times, were again woken up in the middle of the night in the house that they were borrowing in Katerinenburg, walked down to the cellar of the building, lined up and shot every last one of them. That was the grisly end of Nicholas and Alexandra and their five children and three of their servants. 
It was also pretty much the end of the Romanov family in Russia, and it was the beginning of the new Soviet era. And that's exactly where I'm going to go in the next episode, going to look at St. Petersburg in Soviet times, have a look at some of the places there today where you can go and find out more about it, and look at things that tell us more about what life was actually like in the 20s, 30s, 40s in the city of St. Petersburg, under the rule of Lenin and of Stalin and of the communists. So that brings this episode to a close. I hope you found it interesting. I hope it will inform your visit, should you actually be going to St. Petersburg. And I'd like to then end by thanking you very much for listening. Spasibo. And by wishing you goodbye, Russian style. Dos vidanya. <laughs>